Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. Today we are at the Tower of London, oddly enough, and our intention is to interview Dave Phillips. Now Dave is a, a beef eater, a yeoman warder, and has been here for 17 years and he's a good friend. I've known him for some considerable time, probably most of that 17 years to be honest with you. Dave, thanks so, so much for having me in your lovely house, Grade 1 listed. I've never interviewed anybody in a Grade 1 listed building before. Yeah, it's uh, something very special. And in fact, this house is particularly special um, because it's the only home in the Tower of London where a yeoman warder has been killed during active service. The only yeoman warder ever killed. Really? In this yeah. very building? In this home, yeah. Wow. A man called uh, yeoman warder Samuel Reeves um, was killed in October 1941 by the Luftwaffe. The building took a direct hit. Wow. Well, it's, it's been done up well since then, I've got to say. Do you like what I've done with the place? <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, you've been here 17 years, but prior to that, you've had a distinguished uh, military career. But you were originally born in the East End of London. Yes, I'm a Hackney boy. Uh, grew up in sort of Stoke Newington, um, Dorston, that sort of area. Um, and then left there when I was 16 to join the army. Boy soldier? Yep. Uh, joined the Royal Irish Rangers in May 1979 and went immediately over to uh, Ballymena in Northern Ireland to do my training. Um, and as a course as a boy soldier, spent a year in Ballymena. How, did, how was that at that time? I mean, 79, we were getting busy out there. Your Bobby Sands and, and the like were just getting ready to go on the hunger strikes. How, how was that? Um, very interesting. Um, one of the funny things about it is like most people, I expected to be trained before going to Northern Ireland. And there I am as a 16-year-old boy, jumping on a ferry to go from Liverpool to Belfast. And I get picked up by armed soldiers and taken to my new barracks. And of course, for the first three months, the first term, we were confined to camp. But from the second and third term, we were allowed out. And walking around the streets with a, an East London accent, short hair, um, some interesting times. Yeah, you were only ever going to be a squaddy, weren't you, at the end of the day? So be wandering around looking like that and sounding like that, you weren't going to be there as a tourist. No, I think to be fairly, I, I got away with it because at 16 years of age, I looked about 14. Um, <laughs> I was a skinny little runt. Um, and of course, people probably looked at me and thought, there's no way he's a soldier, he's too young. Um, and of course, on weekends off, I couldn't come home to London. So I would go off to friends' homes all around um, the various parts of Northern Ireland. So I walked around Belfast as a 16-year-old, um, going into the pubs with friends. Fascinating. I, I, I like Belfast. I've been out there um, playing hockey with the police against the IUC. Different different time then, it was when it was the IUC. And we got to see some really interesting places. So how long were you in Northern Ireland for your training? Uh, a year. It was a, a whole year. As a junior soldier, you went for a whole year. Um, then we had a couple of weeks leave and then went off to our units. And where was your unit based? I was based at the time in Tidworth down in Hampshire. Oh, okay. So that was my first um, couple of years in the battalion. And of course, once you hit the battalion, that's I joined the 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Rangers. Um, you then start your continuation training, uh, which eventually led me into support weapons, anti-tank weapons. Wow. So what does that mean, anti-tank weapons? You're talking about, I don't know, armor-piercing? Well, in, in my day, we, in my day, sounds really old. <laughs> um, but when I first joined the anti-tanks, we were in Tidworth and we had a wheeled 120 millimeter gun. Um, so I recall this gun, 120 millimeter, and it fired a Hesh round, high explosive squash head, um, out to a range of about 1500 meters. Um, very good fun, crewed by four men. And we were basically deployed to destroy tanks, to destroy any armor in the battlefield. Later on in life, I moved on to Wombat when we moved out to Berlin. Similar weapon, but a slightly different version of it. Um, that's more vehicle based, so it's mounted on a Land Rover. And belt fed? Is there... No, all single shot. I mean, 120 
uh, round, 120 millimeter round, weighs about 60 pounds. My life. So all of a sudden I started getting bigger and stronger because I was lumping 60 pound shells around. Oh my word, that's, uh, that, yeah, that's quite, a, that is quite a lump as well. Where do you go to from there? Um, well, from Titworth, I was deployed to, on several overseas exercises for normally six weeks at a time. So I went out to Gibraltar, Canada, and America, and several exercises over in Germany. And then in 1981, we were deployed to Berlin for two years Berlin. as part of the garrison. And what, were you, what did you do in Berlin? What were your prime functions there? Primary role was the defense of Berlin, should the Russians attack come over the wall. And because I was anti-tanks, we had pre-deployment positions where we would deploy around protecting bridges, main roads, um, generally protecting the bridges whilst the Royal Engineers blew them up uh, <laughs> to stop the Russians coming across them and getting easily across the, uh, the Harbour River. And obviously slowing tanks down by taking out command vehicles, lead tanks. And of course, one of my many duties over there was guarding um, Spandau Prison. And at the time, there was only one prisoner in there, prisoner number seven, Rudolf Hess. Number seven, how did he get number seven? Well, the, the Russians gave them all numbers because they, they didn't want to give them the dignity of using their name. Right. And of course, as all the other prisoners died off or were released under ill health or put into other prisons, um, Hess was the last one left. And there's a direct link between what you do now and and, and that particular role, because he landed in the UK in 1941. 1941. Yeah. So 41 years beforehand, yeah, he was he was landing in the UK. Broke his leg, I think, as he landed, yeah. in, and said he was here to send the Fuhrer's good wishes and wanted to take over the yeah. country. Trying to broke a broker a peace deal with Lord Hamilton um, up in Scotland. So he flew his own Messerschmitt into Scotland. Um, couldn't find Dunraven House that he was looking for. Eventually running out of fuel, parachute down, injured his leg and was captured and was taken away. He was originally captured by a farmer who took him to the farmhouse and then called the police. <laughs> police arrived and Rudolf Hess is sitting there drinking a cup of coffee with the farmer's wife. Sorry, a cup of tea in those days. And he was then taken away to the military, gave a false name and it was actually one of the officers in the garrison realised who it was. And then of course everything starts to kick off. Um, from that, he was um, brought down here to London and placed in our prisoner of war collection centre. So he lived in the King's house at the Tower of London. Well, and that was specifically furnished for if Adolf Hitler had been captured, that's where he was going to be, be placed. Yeah, absolutely. He was going to be brought here, placed into the King's house. And then eventually the, um, I think the correct term today is he would be questioned by the intelligence services. <laughs> yeah, I think it's slightly different. Interesting enough, um, a friend of ours who lives in France now, her grandfather was Lord Sandhurst, and he was one of the people that um, MI8, which was the military intercept team, that the radio hands basically, and then yeah. the double cross element and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating, yeah. and the interrogations used to take place either at um, Kensington Palace Gardens in the house there or at Worman Scrubs and if yeah. they didn't tell the truth then they'd be executed and if they did tell the truth they'd probably be executed yeah. as well I mean we had um, the intelligence services here at the Tower of London listening to the prisoners of war oh, wow. um, and they actually put undercover operatives in with the prisoners you know dressed as German prisoners who were obviously fluent German speakers many of whom were German and there were recording devices in the rooms where they were held wow. uh, mainly down in the Salt Tower so the, we're in 1981, did you say? Yes, 1981. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, we're, we're talking 41 years ago that that happened. Yeah. And if you take 1981 back to 1941 years, you're talking about 1940. We're just getting ready for the blitz and everything else that was, was yeah. going on. But 1981 seems like only yesterday. Yeah, to me it does. Um, you know, it doesn't seem that long ago I was working in Berlin. So what was it like? You, you've got the most iconic, notorious prisoner in the world at that time. Yeah. What was that like working at Spandau Prison? It was really strange because in the two years, I probably guarded Hess on seven or eight occasions, and it was a 24-hour duty in Spandau Prison. And at the time, I was a young private soldier, or ranger as we were known, and then got promoted to Lance Corporal. So my duties varied depending on my rank. And most of the time, it was just a simple case of collecting him from his accommodation. And I say accommodation because although he lived in a cell block, 
it was open and he could walk down the corridors, he could make a cup of coffee, make a bit of a sandwich or something. So it wasn't really incarcerated in a cell. He had a whole wing to himself. And it was just a case of taking him out of the, the cell. He would then go out and walk around the grounds. And he had a summer house where he would paint, draw, write poetry. And wherever he went, four of us had to guard him. And it was, it's really strange because all those years later, I come to the Tower of London and when Her Majesty or His Majesty arrived at the Tower of London, four of us escort the King or Queen. And all of a sudden I'm doing this with a, a Nazi war criminal. Did he engage with you whilst you were there? He did, but not a great deal. Um, he would speak to us. Um, he wouldn't discuss anything about the Second World War, the Nazi party, and we weren't allowed to talk about anything to do with current affairs because he, he basically was kept in solitary confinement. He didn't know what was happening in the world. Um, now having said that, he had a radio, which he used to listen to. Until the Russians took turns in gardening, they would take everything off him. So they would take away his radio, his writing materials, reading materials. So he, he really hated it when the Russians took yeah, other duties um, because they treated him very badly. And what was the, what was the turnaround? Because it, it, British Army, Russian military, and the American military was and that the French and the French. Yeah. So, so we all took it in turns, and it, there was no set pattern. It wasn't like you went and did two weeks. It was always a, a sort of varied pattern for security reasons. You didn't want to say right, the French are now going to be on for two and a half weeks. Then the Russians will take over. Then the British, and there was always a big ceremony for the handover between the different nations. And of course, when the British Army were on duty we would have three battalions of infantry soldiers and we would all take it in turns. So it wouldn't necessarily be the Irish Rangers on for two and a half weeks. It would be us or one of the other regiments. And it was always switched around to stop the boredom and to stop the routines mm. from becoming the same. Um, so when we were on duty there, I might do one duty and never do another one for five or six months. Permanently armed as well while you're there. Yeah, absolutely. And was, um, was there, sorry, Doug, was there any risk to him whilst he was in there, other than, you know, from the outside sources, was, it, was there any actual risk? Not really a risk. The main reason we were there was to guard anyone from trying to break in. Right. Because by the time I got there, he was a, an old, infirm, 83-year-old man right. on a walking stick. There's no way he was going to tunnel out, climb over the walls. But it was always a fear that um, Nazi sympathisers would try and break in to yeah. rescue him. So it was more of us guarding people from coming in than prisoners getting out. Fascinating. Really strange times. Yeah, yeah. And of course, what year did he pass away? 1987. 87. Yeah, he took his own life. Did he? Yeah. In the in the small summer house I spoke about earlier on, he used the, um, the flex off a radiator uh, to hang himself. Wow. And the Russians were looking after him at that particular time, weren't they? The French. The French were looking after yeah, him. Yeah. So, of course, what you've now got is there's lots of conspiracy theorists who believe that he was murdered. Yeah. Because... Several times throughout his incarceration, particularly as he started getting infirm, the four superpowers would get together and agree that isn't it time that he was put into another prison because keeping a prison for one man is pretty ridiculous and it's manpower intensive. I mean, we had a platoon of 30 men guarding that prison 24-7. Same with the French, same with the Americans, similar numbers. Strangely, when the Russians came over, they would have between 40 and 60 men now, I've got no doubt in my mind, and anybody thinking about it, that probably half of those were Spetsnaz or they were KGB yeah. in military uniforms because they're now in West Berlin. And of course, when they're off duty, you can walk around West Berlin in uniform spying. Yeah. And of course, you can't be accused of spying because you are very obviously a Russian soldier yeah. in Russian uniform. And it was pretty much the same when we went to East Berlin. We went in uniform. Um, and of course, if he was released and put into another prison, that then took away their time in West Berlin guarding Spandau. And one of the things that I remember being talked about was they said that if he ever died in their hands, they would build a memorial and they would come and guard the memorial. And it was the memorial for the Russian soldiers that had worked in West Berlin guarding the prison, not a memorial to Rudolf Hess. Right. So of course that gave them their, their ticket into the West. They had license to do what they wanted. Absolutely. And fortunately, he died in our hands or French hands. And within 24 hours, the prison was gone. It was completely demolished within 24 hours and dumped at sea. Really? Yeah, because they were worried about, again, Nazi souvenir hunters coming to take a brick yeah. from Spandau prison. So it was completely gone. And within a few months, there was a new supermarket being built, a Russian supermarket on the site. 
which the squaddies uh, refer to as Hesco's. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a real shame because we were talking earlier on as a, as a kid. I remember my dad served all over the world and we at one point lived in Munster. Um, but the British Army don't get those opportunities anymore, do they? No. They don't get to go. I think they might do soon, actually, depending on what uh, happens in Ukraine. I think yeah. they're going to start re-establishing. Well, I think they'll have to start re-establishing bases on mainland Europe. But, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a real shame because the opportunities aren't there. No, there's, there's certainly not. As many, and there's not as many soldiers anymore. No. No, uh, you know we're down to an army of eighty thousand. I think it's the current figures. When I was in it, it was three hundred thousand. So of course, most of those were deployed during the Cold War, yeah. um, waiting for the Russians to come over the border. Yeah, and when we've shrunk down, the Russians will now happen. come over the border. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, interesting days ahead. Certainly, I think that the Poles haven't covered themselves in glory by announcing it was a genuine mistake. That, you know, the. the um, Surface to air missiles or whatever landed in, in Poland, killing two people, right on the border, killing two people. And they yeah. said it was a, a mistake, but only time will tell. So, what happens next in, in Dave Phillips's life? You're, you're, a, you're still a young soldier, young private, Lance Corporal out in, in Berlin. Where'd you yeah. go to from there? Um, from Berlin, I was promoted while I was there to Lance Corporal, having done my uh, promotion course. And we then deployed down to, uh, sorry, back to the UK. And I was sent to Dover for five years. Um, Shawcliffe Barracks, folks? No, actually in Dover. Actually in Dover. Yeah, right, right next to Dover Castle, there's a, a barracks there. No longer exists. Um, I think there's a housing estate there now. Right. Um, but that was sort of home posting for five years, during which time I went off and did various um, operations, exercises, and my first deployment as a soldier to Northern Ireland. Um, in 1984, I went off to South Armagh for... Uh, Proper bandit country. Yeah, proper bandit country, yeah. How was that for you? I mean, this is a, you, you were training there. You've now gone back as a, a, a full-time, you know, fully operational soldier. How was that? It was um, a very, very intense tour um, because we were right at the height of the troubles, bombs, snipers and everything all over the place. And as you say, known as bandit country. Mm. Um, really tough times and operationally um, very hard. I mean, we were out on the ground most of the time. And if we weren't on the ground, we were in camp waiting to deploy into the ground. Um, so for six months, it was a very, very intensive soldiering period. And when you say deploy, I mean, for those people listening, you're actually, you've got your you've got your equipment, you've got your uh, packs, all that, and you just go and live out on the, or do you come back to camp? No, no, we, we could be out on the hills um, because in South Omar, a very, very hilly part of the area. Um, in Northern Ireland, right on the border. Beautiful. Southern Ireland. Oh, absolutely stunning. Yeah. If you're into hill walking, it's a beautiful country. Yeah. But when you're hill walking with your rifle, your burger and your backpack, and you're out there for three, four days at a time on patrol, um, it's quite intensive. Yeah. And of course, unlike conventional warfare, you can't see the enemy. You know, somebody in a, a shirt and tie, somebody in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt could be a sniper. Yeah. And you don't know until they open fire. And historically, that happened a lot in that particular part of Northern Ireland. It did happen a hell of a lot. Um, during that tour, we lost three people that were actually blown up um, by an IED. How do, how do you cope with that as a, as a serving soldier? And this is why I ask this question of people that have been through a similar situation, but how do you cope, cope with that when you know tomorrow or within half an hour, you've got to be back out doing your job? How does that affect you. Do you know, I think it just comes down to training because we all, once you join the army and the whole training ethos is you know potentially you are going to die or you're going to lose friends. So when it happens, whilst it's a great shock and it's really terrible, I think the training, because it's so robust, prepares you for it. You'll never ever get over the fact that a friend has just been killed. No. Um, but you still know there's a job to do and you've got to go and do it. Because if you don't, other friends are going to die, potentially. Um, so you, you just literally get over it, put your kit on, and off you go, go and do it again. And I, I've, I've policed in, in Colchester and, and what have you. And I was, I was always amazed that people took grave umbrage when soldiers would fight each other because we've just trained them to fight. They come back and... They're scrapping the town or they're scrapping the door and whatever. I mean, we had one incident where um, 
one of the doormen said something to one of the um, rear guards in the Paris about hopes all his mates get killed or something like that. Of course, when they all came back, they went and squared away the, the doorman. Yeah. And there seemed to be a great shock and surprise, but actually these are fit fighting people, you know, yeah. and that's what that's what they do. And that's why they've got robust military police and, and regimental police. South Almar, as you say, is beautiful. And I think they're still undergoing a number of issues out there. I think there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get reported in the press, whether there's a press embargo, I'm not really sure, but it's the, the politics is going to it's going to go on and on forever, long after we've gone. Yeah, this. it's going to take generations to change. I mean, the mindset, no matter what people say, the mindset over there will not change for the next 30, 40 years. No. Because until all those old terrorists die off. Yeah. Um, but of course, they're passing their bigoted views onto their children, yeah, and their grandchildren, yeah. So it's gonna, it's it's a tough, it's a tough, call. and that's on both sides of the fence. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've been on, um, I've been back to Belfast several times since. Um, once with my wife um, for a view around the Titanic Museum. Oh, lovely! Belfast City Hall. While we were there, the Christmas markets were on. Probably one of the scariest moments of my life. The very first time I've been in Northern Ireland without rifle in my hands. And we were stood at the Christmas market having a bite to eat and a pint. And all of a sudden behind me, this voice went, excuse me, is your name Davey Phillips? At which point I bricked it, turned around and stood behind me. It was a guy that I was in training with. No. That I hadn't seen in 35 years because I went to one unit, he went to another. Wow. And he recognised me. But there was just that moment where I thought, oh no, this is it. We, we, had, um, we had a job that... We, we ended up sending people out to Northern Ireland. They stayed in the Europa Hotel, which was famously the most bombed hotel in, in the world. In the world. Yeah. And they were in uh, in the pub opposite, and in walks this Northern Irish guy. And he'd obviously tweaked on that these two people were coppers. Yeah. And there's a there's a movie called In the Name of the Father, and he he was played by the famous Northern Irish accent, uh, actor, um, but he was a, a human rights lawyer and he was sitting there chatting to him, but very, very congenial, very, yeah. you know, very nice. But he was basically the mouthpiece for the terrorists in, in, in the courts. Yeah. But it's, it's a beautiful place. It, I mean, Northern Ireland is a beautiful, beautiful country. And we've been back several times since on the, the weekend breaks. And it amazes me how friendly the people are, how lovely they are, but knowing full well with my background, there was people there today who would quite happily put a bullet in the back of my head. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's and it's so small. That's why I couldn't I couldn't come to terms with the 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 tiny size of it. The, the scale was so small with so many problems. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great place. So where did we go to from Northern Ireland? Um, well, when I came back from Northern Ireland, I was sent on a career course, promotion course. Um, because we're now, I'm now a full corporal and I'm looking at my sergeant. So I have to now go off and do education courses, which I did in Chatham down in Kent. Um, so you do a four week education course, reading, writing, arithmetic, basic military um, stuff. And I then went off to be a section commander in the anti-tank platoon. At this stage, we're now using Milan anti-tank guided weapons. So it's still anti-tank, but they're now wire-guided missiles as opposed to big, heavy bombs. Um, and I went off and did that and did quite well on the course, got a distinction, and was recommended to come back as instructor um, within the School of Infantry, which, of course, if I took that decision, it meant I had to rebadge. So I had to go off and do a six-month course um, and then transferred into the Small Arms School Corps. Which is a very... Um how do we describe it? It's quite elite, isn't it? It's quite a... I wouldn't say elite, specialist. Specialist, probably yeah. a nicer okay. word. Yeah, yeah, it's because what they do, the Small Arms School Corps, wherever they, the British military serve, because it's tri-service, wherever the British military serve, you'll find one of us secreted away somewhere. And we are the the British Army's training experts. I hate the term expert, no. but specialist. Um, in training the trainer. Now, everybody thinks the SESE are all snipers and sniper instructors and we're all brilliant at teaching weapons. We use weapons as a vehicle to teach people how to teach. Right. Um, and many of us are first aid instructors, NBC instructors, and lots of other things. So it's taking um, junior NCOs and senior NCOs and, of course, officers 
and teaching them to teach weapons. We've got a very interesting system in the British Army where we have this training the trainer. So embedded into every unit, they have weapons instructors, they have NBC instructors, first aid instructors. Um, so it's all in built. So wherever the unit go in the world, they can train each other. So the theory is if a new weapon came out, a weapon instructor gets hold of the pamphlet, gets hold of the weapon, puts the two together, practices it, and then teach it to his soldiers. And that's what we do. And we then qualify people to be those weapons instructors. And as I say, we're all over the world. So anybody going through courses at Brecon, at Warminster, in my day at Netheraven, anti-tanks, um, Sandhurst, all of these people are getting qualification in weapons and ranges are qualified by us. Still, I think, the smallest corps in the army, 150 people. Really? So when, what's the definition of small arms? Because you've obviously got artillery, you've got the cannons and, and what have you, but what, what's, where does a small arm sit? Well, a small arm is described as anything that an infantry soldier can get his hands on. So whether it's a pistol, a rifle, machine gun, anti-tank guided weapon, mortar, um, a chain gun on a Radon, a Radon cannon. Yeah. So any, any weapon system that a British Army soldier would use in war. We can train him on. That's quite a, there's quite a few weapons that are covered by that. A lot. Um, but it's, that's what I say. You know, we only, on our courses, we would teach one pistol, one rifle, one machine gun. Because the theory of teaching a rifle is exactly the same so, whatever the rifle. Yeah. And of course, it comes to its own um, when you go out to foreign countries working with foreign armies where you can now use their weapons because you've got your inbuilt trainers. And are their weapons unique or do they go, if you go to, I know you worked in the Oman and we'll come on to that, but do they use different weaponry there or is it all the... Yeah, completely different weapons. Um, And most armies, some armies will use the same weapons as us, um, some don't. For instance, when I worked over in Kenya um, for a while, their rangers were still using the old SLR, which was the the weapon I first learned to shoot with. Um, so it was quite interesting to go back to using a weapon that I first saw in 1979. And then we use SA80s. We use SA80 at the moment, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. I went to, um, when I was still in the police, I, I went to Quantico and they've got a, a huge, it's almost, it's a museum, but it's a ballistics tra- um, training and um, blip testing centre. And I held the rifle that they'd use for the ballistic test for the Kennedy assassination. All right. And the guns yeah. that uh, John Dillinger had in his final shootout and Pretty Boy Floyd. And they all get fired. They yeah. all get taken onto the rank. I mean, it's, it's it, yeah. it was boys' own stuff, but it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm not into guns, I'll be yeah. honest with you. I've got a shotgun and, and what have you. But it is, it's a fascinating subject. Well, yeah, I mean, we have, um, down in Warminster, which is my old headquarters, we have a weapons collection. And in there, there is normally the first edition of every single weapon ever issued to the British Army. And there's lots of other pieces that have been captured in Northern Ireland, captured in various wars. And many of those weapons still fire today. So every year they have to be recertificated. So during our annual reunions, we go down there, take all the weapons out, take them out on the range, and oh, we're brilliant. firing black powder, we're firing machine guns, you know, Lewis, Bren guns. It's brilliant, a brilliant day out. We had, I remember we had the old 303s when I was in the army today. So that yeah. was uh, the old 303s. Hey, it's, it's superb. So how long were you in the uh, in the school? How long were you? Well, I stayed in the SSE for the rest of my career. Right. Um, because once you rebadge, that was me leaving the Irish Rangers, complete rebadge. I'm now small arms school corps and then spent the rest of my career um, traveling around training people. And the really unusual, it's like a bit like being in a job in the police. I think one of the unusual things is I enjoy teaching. And of course, the higher up the ranks you go, the less teaching you do. Yeah, absolutely. Because you now started to control people and manage people um, and doing centralized lectures rather than on the shop floor in the classroom teaching students. Um, but that's part of rank as career. Yeah, yeah. Right. it has its privileges and its disadvantages yeah, as well. Absolutely. So the, the, the one thing I really love doing, I did less and less of the higher up the ranks I went. Where was the most exotic place that you, you served? Exotic, probably Oman. Um, there was a newly created post. I was working down in Warminster at the time as the SMI training, so Warrant Officer Class 1, um, Sergeant Major Instructor, in charge of support weapons training for the British Army. Yeah. Um, and a new job was created over in Omar 
in the Sultan Qaboos Military Academy. And what they had there was they had um, three instructors, British Army instructors, a mortar instructor, a small arms instructor, and an explosives. And they couldn't afford to keep paying for three people. And it was one of our previous commanding officers was out in Oman having a conference. And he said, well, instead of having three color sergeants, why don't I give you one SMI who's qualified in all three? And it saves money. Yes, I'm more expensive as W1, but I'm certainly not the same price as three color sergeants. Um, So this new post came up. And of the 18 people, I think, that were qualified to go, one applied. Me. And the reason being is that by the time you're an SMI, you're coming to the end of your career. Yes. And you either are leaving or you are going to commission. And I was told that if I apply for this role, I would be missing out on a commission because they couldn't send me out there. And then six months later, I get commissioned and brought back. So I had to sort of make a decision. Do I commission or do I go out there and have my final two and a half years living in Oman, having a very nice job, an interesting job? And I chose the latter. Um, And whilst I was out there, strangely enough, I then went on to a different career path where because of my background and qualifications, I was asked to extend in the army for another 15 years. Wow. Um, which I did for two years. I was going to say. <laughs> did you pick up again after that? We, uh, no, because I was already now at the top rank, top rank. So I can't be promoted anywhere after that. So I had to give up my potential commission yeah. um, to go and do that job. And then in my last six months there, I then was offered a continuation career, or we used to call long service list. So you then get 15 year extra career in five year increments. Right. Um, okay. And that's what I went on to. So, what year was that? That was in 2003. I came back from Oman, having spent two and a half years working in the Sultan's Military Academy. Very nice. There are worse jobs in the world, so. There, it, it was a really, really, I mean, very similar to, if you imagine for those that know the army, it's like taking Sandhurst at Officer Training School, Brecon at Tactics School, and Warminster at Support Weapons School and putting them all in the same place. So it was a very, very interesting and very varied role because mm. I would be looking at officer training, um, NCO training in all of the specialist weapons, machine guns, mortars, sniping. Um, and basic infantry skills. And so it, from a career point of view, it's a really interesting place to work, but a very frustrating place to work as well, yeah. because um, Arabs don't like changing things. Um, so it's very, very difficult to get them to change their minds and do something slightly differently, which is better. And it took me a long time to realize that the best way of doing it was to show them the difference it would make. Then they would say, okay, leave that with us and then one of their officers would come up with the idea and we would change having seen me do it and it, it's it's a very frustrating job but it was like going back 20 years or 30 years in the British Army training and then trying to move it 30 years forward in a space of two and a half years and we only have to look at what's happening in, in Qatar at the moment with the yes you can do it one minute no you can't do yes. it the next and, it's, and they've got a completely different mindset oh very much so were you out there during the Gulf War? What what was going on? Gulf War Two. Gulf War started II. just before I left. Right. Okay. Um, so I was getting ready to leave um, when the Second Gulf War kicked off, and of course, one of the the conversations I had with my wife is that potentially, being a fluent Arabic speaker, I'd be sent out to the Gulf um, to help with translating and, of course, training and building ranges or whatever. Um, but the British Army decided to send me to Sennybridge in South Wales to be in charge of a, a range complex. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. And how long were you at Sennybridge? Uh, two years. And I actually, um, whilst there, I think because we had had such an unusual job in Oman, coming back to normal work in the British Army became not difficult, but it was it was frustrating. And I... I started to lose my love of the job. So I decided it was time to look for something else and applied for five jobs, one of which was the Tower of London and had five job interviews and chose the Tower of London because I love history. And it was something that was so unique and so different. 
and completely away from the army, a bit like the time I spent no man, that we decided to give this a go. And I've been here since um, September 2005. And it is a great place. I, I still get goosebumps as I walk through that gate. And I, I've been very privileged, and that is the right word, to come here on a number of occasions. I've been to weddings, I've been to New Year's Eve, and I still get a buzz out coming here. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I, I live here. I've lived here 17 years. And I still occasionally, when I'm walking back from meeting friends in town, and you come around the corner, you see the White Tower all lit up at night. It's just beautiful. And you, I don't think anybody will ever get bored of seeing that view and thinking, that's my home. Yeah. And, and the fact that when when we leave the bar, but when we, you leave the bar and you walk down these empty streets, and these are the streets where every king and queen of England has been since 1066, it's quite an, it's an amazing place. And when you go into the chapel and you've got the crypts and some small and all the things that go with it, you go and see the crown jewels. You you can't quantify this as a package. It's the most and you, dare I say it, as a, as a beef eater here, you are the most iconic sites in London. Because you only have to, I get off the plane at, um, at Heathrow and I, I see pictures of beef eaters, or if I'm getting on, I see pictures of beef eaters. Um, Everybody flocks here, and some days, I mean, the, the numbers of people that you you have here are huge. They are. I mean, we can be um, certainly pre-COVID, the height of the summer season, we can have seventeen, eighteen thousand in a day in the Tower of London. And I have met people from all over the world and had the privilege of interpreting history for them. You know, as a, a young lad growing up in the East End of London who used to play in the Tower of London as a child. Because when I was a child, it was free to come into the grounds. Was it really? And then you paid separate entry to go into each building. And of course, I used to run around climbing on the cannons, annoying the hell out of these grumpy old beef eaters. <laughs> Never realizing 40 years later, karma would bite me in the backside. Yeah. And I'd be shouting at the kids to get off the cannons. That's brilliant. Yeah. I, I always remember one of you, I was talking to you and there was an American and you said to them, oh, wait, where are you from? And they said, oh, America. You said, oh, that's, I did American as a degree. It's the best two weeks I've spent. <laughs> yeah, you, you can have a lot of fun. And I think 99.9% .9 of people take it the way it's meant. It's a bit of fun. Yeah, and, yeah they you know, do. Because uh, history at school for me was a boring, dry, awful subject. I really hated history. And it was only as I grew up and started traveling the world with the military I got a real interest in history. And I personally like social history. You know, why do people dress like that? Yeah. Why do they eat that food? Why do they live in that style of house? And I love that. So given the opportunity to talk about our British history to people from all over the world is a wonderful privilege. Yeah, it's, it's a great place. And, and of course, you came here 2005 and then you joined the Special Constabulary. Yeah, after um, a couple of years here, I'll be honest, I missed the adrenaline of being in the army. Um, so I was looking for something else. And I've, I've done voluntary work my whole military career in my spare time. Um, and I was looking for something to do here. And we had a presentation by a special chief inspector. And it sounded quite interesting. So I applied, went off to Hendon in 2009, did my training, and then became a special constable in February 2009. And where did you serve? Where have you served? Because you're still serving, but so where, where have you served? This well, I started off for the first five years, I was in the local Safer Neighbourhood team. So St. Catharines and Wapping, where I sort of did my street duties, as it's known today, where I learned the trade, if you like, of being yeah. a police officer on the ground. Um, had some fantastic people, you know, really worked with a good team of guys. And the skipper in particular was on the ball, um, you know, sort of coaching, mentoring, because I'm, I'm out there on the streets with police officers who are younger than my youngest son. Yeah. But of course, they've been police officers for five, six, seven years. I'm the new boy, even though I'm old enough to be their fathers. So really, really good learning that sort of tradecraft. Um, and after five years, I moved across to the counter-terrorism patrol unit. Interesting. Um, a friend of mine had moved across from the team into there, and after about a year, he said, look, there's an opening up here. Um, based on your military background, this might be quite interesting. So I went across, had a word with the skipper over there, the sergeant, and said he just basically said, why don't you come along, do a few duties, see if you like it, and then we'll see where it goes from there. So I spent the next um, 
what, seven years working with counter-terrorism. Counter so what year did you go into that? That was 2015. Okay. That's interesting, though, because I... A lot of things have happened. I interviewed um, a guy yesterday who was, who was part of the 7-7 mortuary team, might be. Um, but we, as a as a nation, we professionalised the way that we investigate counter-terrorism, the way that we not only investigate, but we try and prevent it from happening. We, we've really developed as a... We've got a class act. I think yeah. we're probably... I would say it, wouldn't I? But probably the best in the world when it comes to the, the sorts of things that we can do. Yeah, because I think that the biggest thing with counterterrorism is to deter. Yeah. And then afterwards detect. But if you can deter it before it even happens, you're saving lives. And it, it's really strange because you, you will do duties and you'll know this, but you'll do things that deter a potential terrorist attack and you'll never know you've deterred it. It just doesn't happen. So, of course, you can't quantify what you've done. But I think what, what's also lost by some of the public is, yes, it is counterterrorism, but actually it's community because actually, dare I say it, we've got people that are plotting against the, the government, the infrastructure, the authorities. They live in the community and therefore yeah. you need to have that, those strong community links in order to do the preventative stuff. Yeah. And the other thing that that engagement brings information, intelligence, which then becomes actionable when you're able then to take it even further and, and drill into it to, to prevent it. You know, generations we're looking at it because some, some groups, some community groups are, it's ingrained. The, the yeah. battle is ingrained in them, yeah, and they will they will they will look for the soft targets. Yeah, I think you're quite right because when you, as soon as you say terrorism, um, most people automatically think of Islamic terrorists. But as you say, you know, to a degree, just stop oil that we're having at the moment. Yeah, you know, getting people in there, find that information, find out where they're planning to disrupt yep. our lives, yep. and stop it before it happens. As yep. it's happening every single day, people just don't see it. No, um, but it's happening every single hour of every day that people are out there talking to the communities. Fine. Uh, to be honest, to me, walking the beat as a police officer is very much like walking Northern Ireland, walking the streets of Northern Ireland. You engage with the community. You know, some people don't want to be seen to be talking, but to a uniformed person. But if you can get them talking, it's amazing the amount of intelligence you gather just from talking to local people. Absolutely, and, and it's the same as walking out here. Because some people will come in into the Tower of London under duress. They'll be the, the grumpy dad who didn't really want to come with the kids. But it's yeah. about getting them to smile and, and be part and part yeah. parcel of what's actually taking place here. Absolutely. I've always heard my theory. Maybe it's because I'm a father, a grandfather. But when I see that situation, that family, that are really, you can see the stress they're mm -hmm. under because they've just had to get up early, feed the kids, get on a train, come to London. And just take that pressure away by talking to the kids, engaging the children. Because um, if the children are happy, invariably the parents are happy. Oh, absolutely. And if you can do that, if you can just make those kids smile, you can see the whole family change. So well, if, if you were Dave, age 16, what advice would you give yourself now? If you if you were sitting there with somebody who's thinking, you know what, I'm gonna go and join the, the army, I'm 16 years old, what, what would you tell them? I'd tell them to actually go for it. Do it. I, I have this conversation regularly with visitors, with family, with friends, um, you know, with their children that grown up and thinking of joining the military. I wouldn't say join the army, I would say join the military. Um, it is a fantastic career. I got to see things and do things that the average person would never ever see in their lifetime and had a very good career out of it. And it turned me from a, a 16 year old boy from the East End of London into a man that has traveled internationally, um, has got a wealth of experience and knowledge and it led to me being here. Mm. Without that military car, I couldn't have been here. And I don't think there's many things I would have changed. Don't get me wrong, we all have bad days at work, but there's not many things I would have changed that I've done. And what are the highlights been? What, what, what have the high points been? I mean, you, you've, you've said you met Her Majesty the Queen. I mean, that is, for yeah. me, I absolutely adored yeah. her. Uh, I was privileged enough to be at an event and with about 50 other people, and she came walking through the crowd. Good evening, good evening. Well, you know, well, I think that's always going to be special, meeting the Queen um, or the King. 
Now, I have to say, I've not yet met the king as the king. No. Um, have you met him? Did you meet him as a Prince of Wales? I've met him many times as a Prince of Wales. I had dinner with him some years ago. Did in, you really? Um, yeah, along with 500 other people. Well, but I had dinner over in um, Sandhurst. We, we used to have, while I was still serving the army, um, a warrant officers convention. So all warrant officer class ones in the army would go together for a study period to find out where the British army's going, what we're doing. And it would finish with a, a big regimental dinner. And he was the guest of honor at dinner. Um, lovely man. I've spoken to him on several occasions. Very funny story, actually, with Prince Charles. He was 2019. He came to the Tower of London and brought with him all the regalia when he was inaugurated as Prince of Wales. And it's now on display in the Crown Jewels. And he wanted a very informal picture with the Yeoman Warders. So we were just stood on Tower Green in front of the King's House, Queen's House then, um, in a semicircle. And the idea was he was just going to walk out, turn around, look up at the balcony, a nice informal photograph. And then he said, I want the Yeomans just to crowd around me and I'll have a chat with them. And he walked out of the Queen's house. There was probably 30 Yeomans all stood there in our state dress, our red ceremony uniform, with probably about 200 medals between us. And he walked straight over towards me. And as he came towards me, he said, that medal you're wearing is from Omar. And he recognized that one medal, you know, that one medal ribbon. And I said, yes, sir. I, you know, I'd served in Oman for two and a half years. And he started speaking Arabic to me. Did he really? Which blew my mind. Wow. So I replied because I once spoke fluent Arabic. So we started having this conversation in Arabic. And after about, I don't know, four or five sentences, he sort of went, right, that's, that's it. You've beaten me. That's all I know. But it just blew my mind that not only did he recognize that one medal that I was given by Sultan Qaboos, but he spoke to me in Arabic. And it's little things like that, I think, that just show you how clever this guy is mm. and just what oh, he's I done agree. in his life. I agree. Yeah. I've I got think a lovely that... photograph, actually, of him smiling at me, um, speaking Arabic to him. That's fantastic. And that these are money can't buy situations. Yeah. And I've got a lot of friends here, and I know that you, you get to some very, very interesting places, the embassies in London, what have you. You can't just walk into these places off no. the street. And you are instantly recognisable. And I always remember Steve McManamy before he, he went off to the States. He went to a theatre. And I think it was either Bradley Walsh or Joe Pasquale. And when they started talking, he said, what do you do? Joe Pasquale really was. He said, what do you do? So I'm a beef eater. And it was, it was absolutely wrapped with the fact that he was a beef eater. Yeah. And, and Steve couldn't understand. I said, but the fact is that if you had your uniform on, your state dress everybody will know that you're a beef eater. If Bradley Walsh or Joe Pasquale walks into a restaurant in New York, dressed as they are, well, guess what? No one's going to know who they are. And that's the difference. This was a 32, 34 of you now. 34 of us now. 34 now. It was 37, and then there were... Yeah, we lost a few to redundancy during uh, COVID. And you are all instantly recognisable. They might not remember your face, but guess what? That uniform. Yeah, it's iconic. Yeah, it is iconic. And mm. and how old is that uniform? Well, the, the the state dress dates from 1485, the red uniform. Our working dress, blue undress, that only dates from 1853. So, so it's, it's fairly new. Well, yeah, yeah. as I always say to our American friends, um, it's very, very old. <laughs> the two English people, it's fairly new. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is that Charles II, the... Um, the, the state? No, it comes from um, Henry the Seventh. Henry the Seventh. Yeah. Originally, the uniform was green. Oh. Um, yeah, but it was changed to red because in those days, the most expensive colours to make were purple, red, and blue. So, of course, the monarchy still wear purple, and by putting us in blue and red, you're basically saying, look at me, how powerful I am, how wealthy I am. I can even put my servants in the best quality clothing. So that's why I've always won that colour. And I was just thinking while you were talking there about instantly recognisable. Judith, my wife and I, some years ago, were at a comedy show in Leicester Square. And the warm-up act came on and he said something along the lines of, just to get you all going, whoever's got the most interesting job in this room, I'm going to buy a round for. (laughs) So he said, if you've got an interesting job, put your hand up. So I put my hand up along with, I don't know, 50 other people. And he went around questioning. Eventually, after several questions, there were two people left with a hand up, me and another guy. So he said to this other guy, so what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a, a personal bodyguard. All right, who for? He said, I'm really sorry, I can't tell you, but suffice it to say, it's a Hollywood star. And he went, wow. And he looked around at me, he said, beat that. I said, I'm a bodyguard as well. 
Who for? Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> I won the round of drinks. And not only that, but when I won the round of drinks, I went to the bar to buy it and the, the bodyguard came over, shook my hand and said, mate, that, that's brilliant. And he bought me a round of drinks as well. <laughs> so yeah, it is, it's instantly recognisable. Yeah, it is absolutely brilliant. And and I, I absolutely love it here. And it's not only here, but it's the history that's wrapped around the place as well. Yeah. Your Tower Hill, the, the, the Tower Bridge, all iconic sites. HMS Belfast out on the water. It's just, I love London and I enjoy coming in here. Yeah, I mean, you know, just because this house was bombed in the Second World War, when he rebuilt it, because the back, the part we're now sitting in, was actually destroyed, it fell into the moat. So when they rebuilt it, very unusually, I've got the only house in the outer wall with windows. Um, so from my kitchen window, you can actually see the Roman city wall. So that just looking out my kitchen window, I'm looking at something that's 2,000 years old. That's, that is brilliant. And all those iconic buildings up on Tower Hill, the Gherkin, uh, the Port of London Authority building. Um, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's not just where I'm sitting. It's all, as you say, all around us. We're surrounded by history. So what's next in, in Dave's life? What's uh... Uh, Retirement. Um, January next year, I'm retiring. Having been here 17 years, I think it's time for a change. Um, we had always planned on leaving when I'm 60, which I'll be next month. Um, that's been delayed slightly with the death of Her Majesty and trying to work out whether I'm going to stay for the coronation. And after about a month of thinking about it, we've decided, you know what, it's time to go. Um, so retirement down to South Wales, my wife's hometown, and a bit more voluntary work. Fantastic. And you do after dinners as well, don't you? You'll do yeah, after dinner speeches. I do after dinner speaking, which I thoroughly enjoy doing. Um, to be fair, most often speaking I've done, I've done for friends and colleagues and for lots of charities. So, of course, I don't charge for it. No. Um, well, because all the money goes to a good cause. Well, we're going to put all your links. Anything that you want to put on, we'll put on onto this podcast. Uh, if there's anything that you want us to share with people, please just let me know and I'll, I'll get it on there. Before yeah, we conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, alter, correct, change? No, I'm very happy. Um, just a nice conversation with an old friend. Thank you. Sorry, but a very old friend. Very old friend. <laughs> David, thank you so much for your time today. I wish you well, and I wish you well for the future. And uh, I look forward to hearing what you're up to next. Thanks very much.